0: Well, for those of you who were there uh, now about six weeks ago at our 10th anniversary, uh, we met at Living Word Fellowship. Their auditorium holds about, I think, 1,200, 1,300 people. And we estimate that we had about 1,000 people there that night uh, celebrating God's goodness and faithfulness towards Vice City Fellowship. A quick show of hands. How many over there that night on, at, at the anniversary? Well, I found out afterwards, uh, getting back, That next week, or maybe it was the week after, we were talking amongst the lead pastors with Kevin Barra and Johnny Marks and myself, and talking about some insights on what we found from this worship gathering. And this is what Kevin shared. Kevin shared this. He says, You know what? For our people at Tomball, it was good. And he said, The reason why is because normally on a Sunday morning, we've got about 200, 250 people, and we just consider ourselves to be a medium sized church. But that night, we realized that we're part of a much larger church, that we've got 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 people. We're part of a much larger church. So our 200 people, 250 people that we worship alongside typically on Sundays is not Biety City Fellowship. Biety Fellowship is a much larger church that we are a part of. We're family. We're together, serving and growing together. But here's the thing about Numbers, and I understand what he's saying. It does feel good, maybe it's encouraging, to say I'm part of a larger body of believers, a family, especially at Bicycle Fellowship, but also the Church Universal as well. They say I'm part of the greatest fraternity or sorority in the world, the body of Christ. But with numbers come more challenges. And the reason why is because as we come to be a part of the body, a part of the family, whether here locally or globally, but let's use locally. Is we all come with our own needs, we come with our own preferences, we come with our own opinions, we come with all of our own backgrounds, we come together as this one spiritual family. And we come together, especially uh, very often in larger churches, with our needs, a particular financial need or a spiritual need or a need for a job. I was just praying recently for somebody who's looking for a job and trying to help them. We come to the body with needs, and the larger the church... The larger the church family, the more needs there are going to be. Now, here's the question. As the church grows, as more and more people come to faith in Christ, as more and more people join the church, whose shoulders does it rest on to meet the needs and the particular uh, issues of the body? We could hire more and more staff. We could hire uh, qualified pastors and leaders to help shepherd our people. But even that has its limitations. We could, as we have now, godly men serving as under-shepherds, as elders at our church. And we can also have this. We can have you all, the 53 one-anothers of the Bible, all occur in the Gospels and general epistles, serving one another and meeting one another's needs as well. That's totally acceptable and biblical as well. But there is meet the needs of a growing body. So if you ever your mind, that would meet the needs of a growing body. So if you have your Bibles, are going to find out what that office is, how it relates to us, and how it came about. So Acts chapter six, what is this other office in the local church that God has designed so that we can meet the needs of a growing body? Acts six, and we're gonna see a lot of firsts in this passage today, Acts chapter six, a lot of firsts, we're gonna see three firsts. Now, this time, as the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint developed on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked at the daily serving of food. So here's the very first first, as we see the very first conflict within the church. We see the very first conflict within this church. So the church is numbering now in the thousands. We saw 3,000. We saw 5,000. The church at Jerusalem is now a very large church. And we see here in verse 1, the very first conflict, a dispute has arisen between the Hellenistic believers and the Hebraic believers. What does that mean? Well, in Israel, and in Jerusalem in particular, there were two groups of Jews. There were the native Jews who lived there, and they were born there, and they grew there, and they raised their families there, and they worshiped in Hebrew or Aramaic. They studied the scriptures in Hebrew as well. And they would gather together on uh, together in synagogue, in a Hebrew or Aramaic, Aramaic-speaking synagogue. They were the ones who were like the natives, the locals. But there were another group came back after the Jewish diaspora, where these were the Jews that came back after the Jewish diaspora, where they were scattered all around the world, and now they were coming back to Jerusalem. And these are the Jews that may have been born overseas. These are the Jews that may have been formerly slaves in the Roman Empire, or as prisoners in jailed in the Roman Empire. Now they're coming back to Jerusalem. And so ethnically they're the same. Ethnically they're the Jews, but culturally they're different because these Jews are called Hellenistic Jews because they speak Greek. They don't speak Hebrew and Aramaic. And even when they go to synagogue and study, they study the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. The Septuagint, they study in Greek. The Hebrews were more what we would call conservative they stuck stuck really closely to the scriptures while the hellenistic jews were a little bit looser what we would call more progressive and so there's a rift that occurred between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, even though ethnically they were the same. And now what happens in the church in Jerusalem is a dispute happens between those believers. Now they're believers. They put their faith in Jesus Christ between the Hellenistic background believers and the Hebraic believers because the Hellenistic believers, the widows, are saying, hey, when it comes to now you caring for the widows, those who have the greatest opportunity to be taken advantage of, we get like a pound of bacon. But the Hebrew widows get like a pound and a half. Actually, I don't know if they would serve bacon because I don't know if they've really understood (laughs) the clean and unclean stuff yet. It's coming in Acts. It's coming. You're going to see it progressively unfolding. So perhaps they're saying, hey, when it comes to serving of grains or foods that we feel like we're being shortchanged, they're crying discrimination. They're crying out saying this is wrong. So we see the very first conflict that's arisen in the church Verse 2, so the 12, the apostles, some of the congregation disciples and said, let's now start a Hellenistic congregation for the Hellenistic believers and a Hebraic congregation for the Hebraic believers. Is that what it says? No. He says this. He says, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Instead, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and wisdom. Who may be put in charge of this task, but we, Acts 6-4, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5, the announcement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and they brought these men before the apostles. After praying, they laid their hands on them. What do they do? There's a cultural dispute of discrimination that arises, the very first conflict, and what the apostles do is say, you know what? We're not saying we're below serving and giving, serving food, but they say right now our church has grown so much, and it's growing in leaps and bounds, a plethora of people, literally in the Greek, are coming that we have to spend our times teaching them the word of God, praying for God to use us, continue praying for protection, praying that we have boldness. We need to focus on prayer and the word. Again, not saying that we don't need to serve, but we need to put our primary focus on those things. So what do they do? They say, now let's call some men in the church to serve this particular issue that's going on, this cry of discrimination. And so they give the attributes or the characteristics. And notice that none of the attributes or characteristics deal with the ability to serve food or manage people. They say simply, find these men who have a good reputation in the community, who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And what do they do? This body of believers, they select from them seven men, as they've been told. And here's the unusual thing. The men that they name are all Greek names. None of them are Jewish names. And so it appears that these apostles and this congregation have said, hey, If it's the Hellenistic, the Greek widows are saying, discrimination, let's lift up some men, elevate some men so that now they can serve and deal with this problem to take care of it so that there's a sense of equity, that everyone is being served equally, that all the widows are being taken care of. So this is what we see. We see the first conflict that arises in the church at Jerusalem, a cultural conflict. But the second thing we see is the first deacons, the first deacons. And this is the office I want to talk about, the deacons. We see the first deacons. Now, here's the thing. For all the Greek scholars in the room, you're saying, but the word, the noun deacon does not appear in Acts chapter 6, and you are absolutely correct. But the word diaconus, a form, the verbal form occurs three times because he says uh, in verse uh, 1, serving of food, and then in verse 2, serve tables, and then in verse 4, ministry of the word. That, that word also is a form of deacon. So he says that these seven men are going to be focusing on serving these widows and making sure not just literally waiting tables, but making sure the management, the administration, the serving of the giving out of is done in a godly and wise way. The other first is this, and this is going to you'll see more and more of this in verse five. It says there's a guy named Nicholas, a proselyte. What does a proselyte mean? Nicholas is a Gentile who becomes a Jew. He says, I am so drawn to the God of the Israelites, the Hebrew God. I'm so drawn to them. What do I need to do? And so proselytes, non-Jews who want to become to serve God, would have to now observe certain rituals to say, you know what? I'm now serving God. And one of them was circumcision. So can you imagine being an adult male who's been uncircumcised, now having to be circumcised? And so Nicholas is hardcore. And this Nicholas now is a believer. It says he's full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. So here in Acts chapter 6, we see the first conflict, a cultural conflict. We see the first deacons who are called. And then we also see the first non-Jewish Christian, or the first non-Jewish convert, a guy named Nicholas. So here's point number one. Every Christian is called to be a servant. There's none of us in here who have not been called to be a servant, to serve God and serve other people, but we also need focus. We also need focus. And so what the apostle says, our focus is not saying that we won't serve people, we won't help people. Our focus, though, primarily is prayer. If God's kingdom is going to continue to advance, if the gospel is going to continue to advance, we must be men of prayer and If we're going to continue to equip these thousands of people who are coming to faith in Christ so that they can mature and grow and learn about following Jesus, learn about the kingdom of God, we must focus on the word of God so that when we teach, these people have said, hey, these people have rightly divided the word. We're going to focus on the word. But he says, we're not going to neglect this conflict that's come up, this problem that's come up, because in churches, conflicts do come up. We're not gonna just sweep it under the rug and pretend like it never happened. We're, I think, led by the Lord. We're gonna select seven men who will fulfill this role of being servants. So again, I would say this, uh, Mark 10, 45 is where I think God is saying to us that we need to serve. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life and ransom many. In verses 41 through 44, he says the disciples, and I believe to us, a call to be servants, a call to be servants. So again, I'm not saying that pastors and leaders should not serve, that we should just read the Bible and study and pray for you all. I'm not saying that we we should serve. But in this case right here, he says, we have now said there have to be deacons. Now, here's a question. Do we have deacons at By City Fellowship? Do we have deacons at By City Fellowship? Uh, It's a trick question, y'all. We do not officially have the office of deacon at Bayou City Fellowship yet, but we do have deacons, I would say. And why do I say that? Because we have men and women, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ at Bayou City Fellowship who serve in the role or function of deacon for sure. We could not be a church of several thousand people now, at least here. Almost a 1,000 people, if it had not been for people who serve and go above and beyond. And that's what deacons are. Deacons are, we've all been called to serve. Deacons are a servant of servants. That's what deacons are. All of us have been called to serve, but they go the extra mile. So let me just clarify this, because some of us come from a background where the deacons in the church were like a more of a social club, where when you were like nominated to be a deacon, you're like, yes, I made the club. I made this exclusive fraternity. Yes, I'm in the club, and now I can look down on people. Now I'm in this pretty position, and I can hang with a pastor and all these other leaders in the church. That's not what being a deacon is. Being a deacon means that person who is a servant of servants, who goes the extra mile, They're the ones, whenever there's an event or something going on in the church, they're the first to show up and the last to leave. They're the ones that, when there's somebody sick and needs a meal brought to them, they're the ones that go and bring that meal. Even it brings an interruption in their day. I remember when my wife and I had our first daughter. We had our first daughter. Now, my home church has both deacons and deaconesses. And so we were on this thing called the meal train. We have it here as well at Vice City Fellowship. And I remember uh, we had just had our daughter. We were on this meal train. And so one of the deaconesses from our church, who was a very successful realtor in Dallas-Fort Worth, she said, hey, where are you going to be? I said, I'm coming from work. She said, can you meet me in the parking lot of Dr. Evans' national ministry? And I said, sure. So I meet her in the parking lot. She comes in like dressed to the nines. She's in her brand new like Mercedes that she takes all her clients around in. And there in the backseat, buckled up, was this whole two or three trays of food. And so even though she had just had a long day of showing houses and working with clients, here was a servant of servants. And so, Keith, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, Keith was an elder at City Refuge where I came from. Whenever we nominated deacons, it wasn't a, yes, I made it. I got nominated. I'm going to be in the exclusive club. Everyone's going to look up to me as a deacon. We had people recognize, based on this passage in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, the verse I read as a call to worship, man. I don't know if I'm like, want to do that. I don't know if I want to show up early and leave late. I don't know if I want to be like this doormat that others walk all over so that the gospel is advanced and ministry is accomplished. And we'd have people regularly saying, nope, I don't want to be a deacon. Not me. So we have deacons at Bike City Fellowship, men and women who serve in the function or role, who go above and beyond. We could not do what we do without them. We could not be who we are if they had not been here. But get ready, y'all, we are getting ready to now have the office of deacon as well. And here's the description, you can write this down for your notes, 1 Timothy 3, eight through 13. 1 Timothy 3, eight through 13. Again, just like this passage, they don't talk about traits Attributes, are they successful in business or do they have leadership abilities and all this stuff? It's characteristics. Do they have a walk with the Lord? How's their reputation in the world? Are they full of the Holy Spirit? Have they been tested? Have they been observed? If there is a sport, and you know I love sports, that's analogous to the church, It's not football, sorry, football fans. It's not basketball, not even baseball. If there's a sport of the kingdom, it is rugby. (laughs) Why do I say rugby? Because rugby, like the church, is global. It happens all around the world. Not convinced yet? In rugby, this is what every player must be able to do. Every player in rugby plays offense and defense. Every player in rugby must know how to pass the ball and kick the ball. Every player in rugby must know how to tackle. Every player must do all these things. And then you're saying, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But yet within that, there's still specialization. There are different positions in rugby that require maybe specific skills. But everyone is required to tackle, play offense and defense to know how to kick the ball and know how to pass the ball. It's not reserved for exclusive group of people. And that's how the church is. All of us have been called to love God and love neighbor. All of us have been called to serve. All of us have been called to give and pray. We've all been called to do that. But what the deacons are, are like a group of people who are now a servant of servants. They occupy a unique position or office within the body of Christ. So again, every Christian is called to be a servant, but we also need focus. We need focus. But this is what happens when we do focus. Verse seven: The word of God kept spreading, and the number of disciples. Ah, I forgot to mention this too. The other first in verse one: the disciples. This is the first time the word "matetes" disciples is used in Acts. So this is another first. So he says in verse seven, the word of God kept praying and the number of disciples, there's that word again, followers or student followers who submit to Jesus continue to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So point number two, focus leads to flourishing. When every one of us in the body of Christ is doing our part, our role in the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, if we're doing our part in the body of Christ, when the pastors and leaders are equipping and teaching and praying When we're doing that, when those of us who have been called to various offices are doing what we need to do, when all the believers are serving and loving God and loving neighbor, what happens as we're bold, the word of God keeps spreading and the number of disciples continues to increase greatly. So focus leads to flourishing. And here's the thing. Even with this problems within the church, this internal conflict, even with external persecution The church continued to grow and flourish. The gospel continued to spread. The kingdom continued to grow. And this is how much it did. Verse 7 at the end, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The religious, spiritual, and political leaders of the day were now even coming to faith in Jesus Christ because everyone was doing their part. Focus leads to flourishing. If you've read the book, Good to Great, I think even the secular world understands this concept. There's a hedgehog concept. The hedgehog concept says this. The hedgehog only does one thing. When the hedgehog focuses on, all on that one thing, it flourishes. Uh, there's a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution. Same thing. Discipline number one is what? Focus. When you are on the job, you have many roles to do, I'm sure, and jobs to do. But focus on that one task or one role. And it's much like this. Uh, my daughter is now getting into marketing, and she has this camera, this camera that does everything. It's one of those autofocus super cameras, low light, lots of light, high speed, low speed. That does everything. It's a Sony whiz-bang camera. I can't remember the exact name of it. But here's the thing that it must have. Even if you have all these gadgets and all that, it still has to have focus, you can't tell this camera, take a picture of everything because it can only take a picture well of something. And I believe that to be true of the body of Christ as well. Again, you may have many gifts and abilities, but we all have a focus. Again, not saying that pastors do not serve, not saying that at all, but we have a focus. Actually, know, we've got time. Let's turn there. 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. I, I do want to read this. 1 Timothy 3. Paul has just described to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, his spiritual son Timothy, the office of elder. And now in verse 8, he transitions now to this other office we've talked about in the church known as deacon. Verse 8 Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not insincere, not prone to drink much wine. Not grief or money, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then have them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but tempered, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus so notice again, nothing about work and all that, but he says, managers of the home, their character, do they have walk with God? Have they been tested? That's who we look for in deacons. So again, focus leads to flourishing. Focus leads to flourishing. Now, my question to you is this. If you are a part, if you are a committed part of Bicy Fellowship, and I just met someone who's visiting today for the very first time, so I'm not talking to you, but if you are a member or you consider this your church home, my question to you is this, is where Are you serving? Where are you focusing on serving, whether inside the body of Christ, inside these walls, or inside the family, or as a member of the body outside these walls? And this is what we're gonna do. I think it's coming, or it's already on there. On the app, the Byte City Fellowship, Spring Branch app, we have a thing called Serving. You touch that. It's got all, like the 30 different ways that you can serve at Byte City Fellowship. So my encouragement is this. Find a focus. Keep loving your neighbor, keep serving, keep doing all those things, but find a focus. I was asked this when I first got here. They said to me, a leader said to me, you preach kind of bold, like you're in people's face. And I'm like, uh, I don't know any other way. Like I, that's, that's how I've been taught. Like, you know, and this person said, well, I know your, your spiritual father, your mentor is Dr. Tony Evans. I listen to him on the radio now for many, many years. I've never heard him say stuff like really, really in your face. And I'm like, that's because the messages he preached on Sunday and what goes on the radio are edited. <laughs> and I said, I can tell you this one time. He said, in church, I'm there. If you are a member of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship or you consider yourself like this is your home church, a regular attender, would you stand up? And so he had everyone stand up consider themselves a member or regular tender, like this is your church home. And then he said, if you serve in a ministry here on a regular basis, would you now sit down? They sat down. In an auditorium of about 3,000 people, there's still probably close to like seven or 800 people still standing up. And he said, I challenge you all, the 700 or 800 of you standing who are a part of this church, who consider yourself a part of this family who are not serving To find a place to serve. Because we're in a family. It's give and take. It's mutual accountability and responsibility. We give to you and you give to us. We're a family. And then this is what he said. In nature, there's an organism. There's an animal known as a leech. A leech leeches onto a human, leeches onto a fish, sucks the nutrients out of that fish or that animal for its own benefit and gives nothing back. He says, you all are leeches, So if you think I'm bold, that's where I get it from. And he called out these believers. And so my friends, my ask is this, that you would find a focus, find a focus, continue to love your neighbor and serve, continue to give generously to the resource, your material resources to buy, do those things, please give, please give. And that's another way that we can give back to the family by giving regularly and generously find a focus, find a focus. Last thing is this, Acts 6, go back to Acts 6. So we're all on a rugby team known as the church, the family of God. We all have to do these things. We all have to block and tackle and play offense and defense. But there's also focus, find your focus. Look at verse eight. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those are people from North Africa, and from Cilicia and Asia, that's modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor, and some from, uh, uh, rose up and argued with Stephen. So this is what most likely is happening. Stephen is one of the Hellenistic Christians, the Greek Christians, He was a Jew that probably lived somewhere else that came back to Jerusalem. Heard the gospel, placed his faith in Jesus Christ, submitted himself to the Lordship of Christ. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a man full of wisdom and the Spirit. And this is what I think happened. He goes back most likely to the synagogue he came from. Because like I mentioned, Jerusalem was a divided city culturally, ethnically one, but culturally divided. They had synagogues that taught in Greek, and synagogues that taught in uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, and they were divided. And what the church did was say, rather than having a now Greek-speaking church and Aramaic church, since Koine Greek is a common language, we're all gonna just have one body. We're gonna work through these cultural conflicts. But what Stephen does is he goes back, most likely, to the synagogue he came from, to his homeboys and homegirls he grew up with, and said, I have found the truth. The Messiah has come, this Messiah we've been talking about from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Messiah has come. And now they argue with him. Verse 10, and, oh yeah, and the reason why it's called the synagogue of the freedmen is because most likely these are Jews who were in captivity, either as prisoners or as slaves in Rome, who were set free and sent back to Jerusalem. That's why it's called the synagogue of the freedmen. And again, there was a click, there was a division in Jerusalem between the Hebrew Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, and so say, we're just gonna start our own little synagogue then. But they were unable, verse 10, to cope with with his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then, because they couldn't, uh, couldn't cope with it, they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up, and that word stirred up is an interesting word. It means literally physically. It's got the same root word as kinesiology. They bodily and physically stirred up people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking against his holy place and the law. We don't know what Stephen said, but most likely he was saying, Don't need to sacrifice in the temple anymore. You don't need to sacrifice in the temple anymore because Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, amen? You don't need to sacrifice anymore. And they took that to say, he's now speaking against the temple because he was exalting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for we've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the council stared. That word stared is the same word in Acts 1.10, which says the disciples looked up. They stared as Jesus went into heaven. At him, and they saw his face, which was like the face of an angel. So imagine Stephen, one of the first deacons. Stephen and Philip are mentioned again in Acts. We'll see it next week. The other five deacons are not mentioned again. Stephen is bold, he goes back to the synagogue most likely he came from. Preaches the gospel with boldness. Fill the Holy Spirit to the point where the people who are trying to argue with him, contradict him, can't cope. Because it's not him, it's the Holy Spirit. And that's my prayer for you all, is that as you're bold at work or in school, in your neighborhoods, it's not you. It's not you, it's the Holy Spirit. And because that, they have these false witnesses that come up. That take stuff out of context. Take stuff he said out of context. Or misconstrue things or totally just made up things. But notice what happens at the very end in verse 15. They stared at him, and he had the face which was like the face of an angel. That word angel is literally a messenger, and that's what he is. He's delivering a message, the gospel message. And we don't know what that looked like. Whether it was a face of just pure innocence and purity, saying, I love you, and here's the message, the good news. You don't need to sacrifice anymore. You don't have to wait on the Messiah anymore. You don't have to wait on this coming kingdom anymore. The King, Jesus Christ, has come. He is here. Or it could be like Exodus chapter 34 and Moses went up to the mountaintop to meet with God and came back and his face radiated and shone. It may have been that, that he was such in the presence of God that there was a radiance about Stephen. We don't know. The text does not tell us. But there was something that distinguished him, that set him apart, that probably moved in the hearts of the council. So here's point number three. Regardless of our focus, and find your focus, regardless of your focus, we're all still his witnesses. Acts 1.8, be his witnesses to build this kingdom. We are still his witnesses. Wherever you go, you are his witness. And for some of you, it may be like Stephen. It may be going back to the place you came from to say, Jesus Christ has made this difference in my life. He has changed my life. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you are thinking, but I'm still a new believer. I just came to faith like a month ago. I just came to faith like three months ago. I'm still a new believer. Y'all, Stephen is still a new believer. We're just in Acts 6. The church of Jerusalem is a brand new church that has thousands of people and all of them are new believers. That's why the apostles that walk with Jesus for three and a half years and now have come to faith themselves are saying, man, we need to share the word, invest the word in these disciples. We need to disciple them. We need to help them grow. So again... We are still his witnesses. Whether you've been a believer for a month, been a believer for 20 years, 30 years, we are still his witnesses. Wherever you go, you are his witness. Many years ago, I had a friend of mine. um, He ran track at the same school I did. He was our school record holder in the mile. He got a sponsorship from Reebok. And so I remember one time going to his apartment, he opened his closet from floor to ceiling. Reebok running shoes. All kinds of shoes. He had Reebok. He was injured. He was injured. And our school, where I ran, was sponsored by Nike. So he had all Nike stuff, but now that he had a new sponsor, he had all Reebok stuff. He was injured. And so he went to a track meet. Reebok warm ups, Reebok pants. But accidentally, he put on a pair of his old Nike running shoes from his college days. He shows up to this track meet, not as a runner but just to observe and watch and support his teammates, the other athletes sponsored by Nike. So here he is walking along the field, walking up in the stands, talking to vendors, talking to athletes, signing autographs and all that. And then the Reebok representative saw my friend and said, Reebok, Reebok, Nike, you are a witness for Nike. I mean, I'm sorry, you are a witness for Reebok. You are sponsored by Reebok. And so this is what happened. They took him in his little back little tent, had him take off his shoes, gave him a brand new pair of Reebok shoes and put them on. And this was the reminder. Remember, wherever you go, you represent Reebok. You're a witness for Reebok. The Nike, that was the old you. You don't represent Nike no more. You represent Reebok. And my friends, we don't represent the world anymore. You were saved, as it says in Acts 1, out of this crooked and perverse generation. You are now part of the body of Christ, the church. Jesus Christ is your king. He's your master. He's your Lord. And so wherever you go, whether here on Sunday mornings or outside at a restaurant later today or at work, remember, regardless of your focus, and we all should have a focus, we are his witnesses. Amen? Now, we're going to do something to wrap up very different today. What I'm going to ask you to do is this. Uh, Not only do the apostles pray and focus on the word, I want to be a church of prayer as well. So we're going to pray. We're going to pray for three things. We're going to pray for three things. And if you're comfortable, if you are comfortable praying with people around you, you are welcome to do that. If you are not comfortable praying with people around you or close knit, you don't have to do that as well. If you don't feel comfortable praying out loud, please don't feel obligated to do so. Please pray silently. But these are the three things we're praying for. Number one is this, and I have no time frame on when the, the office of deacon. We're working on it diligently. It takes work. So, would you pray for our future deacons at Byte City Fellowship? And when I say deacons, I'm talking about those in the office of deacon. Number two, Lord, where would you want me to serve? Where do you want me to serve? Is there somewhere that you are calling me to serve? Email me, contact me, any of our staff. If you're saying, hey, I'm one of those people I'm a part of BIC fellowship and I'm not really serving on a regular basis and I want to find a place to serve, but pray. Where do you want me to serve? And continue to pray. May I be your witness, a bold witness, may I have boldness. And hopefully you've been praying last week. Thank you for taking all those prayer cards, but hopefully you're praying for one another, but pray also, Lord, would you continue to allow me to be filled with the Holy Spirit and be bold. So for the next five or 10 minutes, we're just going to gather in groups and pray. And again, if you're comfortable with gathering groups, please do so. If you're not, you can pray there by yourself. Pray out loud, pray silently. This is your time.